Hello and welcome to Doing the Opposite of Business Disruptors. I'm really excited today um, to welcome my guest, who's somebody I've known for six or seven months. We've worked together on occasions in the Lisbon area in Portugal, and uh, her name is Diana. And Diana is probably best known in Spain as being recognized as one of the most influential businesswomen in that country. And she's received numerous awards for her professional career. But most notably, um, probably known for the rollout of Deliveroo across 30 Spanish cities. Hello, Diana. Hi, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. And it's been fantastic to have you with me today. Thanks for having me. So, Diana, you know the um, purpose of the podcast. It's really to try and dive deep into people's experiences and uh, golden nuggets and wisdoms of their career and their life. So what would be lovely is if you can perhaps sort of set the scene and take us through a bit of journey on where you have done the opposite, been disruptive or changed the game. Okay, well... You know, being disruptive, I've kind of I've been on the news a lot for being disruptive over the past years because I tend to have this tendency to get into, you know, to create or to get into startups that are seen as very disruptive in the industry, wherein, you know, what we're trying to do is to help people and to change sectors for the better. Um, and they have been transformational. So, you know, Deliveroo was one of those examples, um, but there have been others. So before Deliveroo, there was Zipcar. I don't know if you guys still remember this, but when everybody was, you know, buying cars, and especially Spain, which is a country which is quite traditional, like everybody wants to own something. And if you don't own something, it looks like, you know, you have, you're not accomplished. Yeah, I was the first to set up Zipcar in Spain, which was the first example of collaborative uh, shared cars um, and before that fun which was shared economy even before there was a word for share economy um, so so yeah over the past 12 years I've been disrupting quite a lot but I guess I'd like to give you a little bit more of a, the, the part that people don't really know which is you know how did it get to all this and um, you know people when they talk to me they tend to think oh you, you know probably studied you know whatever accounting or management or as an engineer uh, actually, no. <laughs> so I studied law and international relations, so very, very opposite to where I ended up. Um, you know, I, I actually studied in a very prestigious university in Spain. I was an honors student, you know, one of the top law faculties. Um, and kind of like what everybody expected, like my family, my friends, you know, most of my classmates, um, they all expected that I would then move on to working in a prestigious law firm or becoming a civil servant diplomat or something. Um and but it isn't my it wasn't my calling right I at that time I thought you know, life then changes but at that time I thought okay I want to be a strategy consultant and this might not sound strange to you or to you know English um, speakers that we have listening to the podcast but in Spain you can only become or at least at that time you could only become a strategy consultant if you had been an in, had studied engineering or if you were really weird maybe you could have studied economics or business. But definitely not law. So, you know, being such an honor student, whatever, I, I went to all these big um, consulting firms in Spain and they all looked at me and said, you know, why do you want to do this? Like, you know, you don't tick any of the boxes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I was really into it. Like, I really, really wanted mm. to do this. And um, and so I said, OK, so if you if, if none of the, you know, if none of the consulting um, companies will want me in Spain, where could I go You know, where they would want me? And luckily, you know, luckily I found out that in the UK, it was actually good to be, you know, not just, uh, you know, the consulting companies were looking for people that were not just engineers and not just 
mathematicians or physicians. Um, they were looking for diverse people, so they wanted to build diverse teams. And um, you know, and I got into LEK, which is you know a, a very good firm there, and and that's how it all started. So I guess that was you know probably the first big instance of doing something radically different. Wow, so the UK showing absolute diversity and welcoming the, those different approaches, so great. Yeah, and then and now, like, uh, mm. whatever, like 50, 20 years later in Spain, it seems like they're actually looking for people like that. And it was funny, but three years after I joined, you know, LEK in, in the UK, um, I was then looking to go back to Spain. And I was contacted by, you know, three of the strategy consulting firms that three years earlier had said, you know, you don't take any of the boxes. So. Wow. So you have to remove your emotion and not stick two fingers up and start talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of shows, you know. It does. So, so you've obviously had an incredible. I mean, I've obviously spoken to you at, at length about stuff, but I guess what I'm trying to draw on is is those real challenges that you face when you're going through the adversity of trying to be disruptive, not for the sake of it. You're being disruptive because you want to in, in, improve people's lives. That's why we do what we do, right? Um, so when you look at the Deliveroo story. I mean, Deliveroo obviously has just become this huge um, facility service benefit that is almost like people now are in the position where, where it be Deliveroo, Just Eat, they, they, the people out there just feel they can't live without it. So it's become a real part of their lives. But of course, being that disruptive brings its consequences, right? So here you are um, taking on this huge project of how do I get uh, a culture to adjust, change, transition to you know, taking food in a completely different way than just putting it into a car park, walking in a restaurant and eating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the background to that is, I, I think I know, I haven't told you this, but when when I, so I was the, I would, I, you could say founder of Deliveroo in Spain. So I was hired to set up Deliveroo in Spain. So, you know, one of the early employees in the company at a global level. Um, and, you know, when I accepted the job and, and started to do this in Spain, I had a, my son, who's now seven years old at that time was just a few months old. Right. So, um, so it was about starting something from scratch, uh, with a, right. an infant. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. yeah. And as you said, they're not doing things easy, dear. Um, well, no. The thing is that you know it was the moment. Like sometimes, and sometimes mm. you have the opportunity to do something, and you have to make the decision in that time. And things are never, you know, crystal clear and and and, and you know and and absolutely great. You you always have to. There are good bits and bad bits, and you need to decide. Mm, so in the delivery case, um, you know, I can I could I distinctly remember people telling me do you really think people are going to order food delivery in Spain? But we have all these amazing restaurants. Why would anybody want to eat at home? <laughs> okay. And, you know, and a couple of years later, we were, you know, one of the best known brands in Spain and, <laughs> and we're serving, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. So Unbelievable. you do need to believe that it is possible, right? And for me, it was uh, luckily uh, France as a country launched about six, six, eight months before we launched in Spain. And I could see that the uptake in France was 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 quite good. And I said, well, you know, if the, really the French are well known for good food, so if the French are ordering delivery, why wouldn't we in Spain? And the issue, the reason why Spanish people were not ordering delivery when we started doing it at Deliveroo was because companies until then were really only bringing them really shitty food from shitty restaurants. So that's why our strategy was okay. Let's only work with the best restaurants in the neighborhoods. Right. And that's how we did it. Mm. But that, I mean, when I look back on it, and obviously knowing from my own experience and, and doing what I do, to mobilise not only um, 
a culture and a methodology and the technology. It's mobilizing those restaurants that, that are on the journey. When will it actually turn into revenue? Because that's what they care about, right? So, and then how do I get the people to be reliable that are going to collect and deliver and all that sort of stuff? I mean, that, that, that's just, it's not coming from every angle. Yes, that, that's what highly operational businesses have, right? And that's the fun in it as well. Um, I think what was really important was, you know, getting um, the right team together of people. So if I look back on, and these are people, you're going to laugh, but you know, the first um, managers, I hired them in a bar in Spain, okay, so because we didn't even have an office at the time. We, we, I, we, I was trying to do a lot of things at the same time, so we're looking for an office, um, but we had a hard date in which we said, okay, one month from now, we're going to launch whatever it takes. So I had to hire people in, you know, in restaurants, and <laughs> we didn't have an office. But this first group of early employees, whatever, um, were just extremely good and extremely committed. And, um, and of course, like, you know, as our manager, as our leader, I had, I was super committed as well. So it's about, you know, choosing the right people, but then also leading by example. And, um, and, you know, and we would being willing to do whatever it takes to get things done, right? So we would go to restaurants in the middle of the night and help them out if they had a problem, the first few ones with a tablet, because things that now seem trivial were not at that time of course yeah um, yeah doing deliveries yeah. ourselves like i did deliveries on my car with my baby at the back right wow, wow. <laughs> and at some that's point somebody that's tipped me and i was yeah. super and I, you know i was i was i was super proud i got a dip <laughs> <laughs> the whole at that time we were like there were quite a few people already in the office and everybody was just laughing but that also shows the importance i mean my background is an engineer and of course that you know stands me in good stead when i'm working in this industry because i understand it i've been there done it i felt it and touched it so you know when you're a, a leader a, and a driver of an organization you know even a startup to demonstrate you're prepared to do what everybody else does you know is one of the first stages of leadership right there is there's nothing you would ask somebody else to do you're not prepared to do yourself and um, and that that stands in good stead so if you had to reflect on that delivery journey what would you say was the most challenging element of that project it was dealing with the media and the public backlash because you know i was convinced and as a company we were convinced that and we're still convinced that you know that we were doing the right thing at the end of the day we were helping small business helping small restaurants thrive and you could see it now with the pandemic right these restaurants uh, for for a few months like the only income stream they had was food delivery so we were you know clearly helping from our from my perspective we were helping businesses helping restaurants helping you know, busy people uh, get access to good, healthy food options um, and helping also writers be able to make a living for themselves in, in, in a lot of, you know, in a lot of cases, people who could normally, who would have very difficult, lots of difficulties in finding other types of jobs. Um, but it is true that the model was, um, and, and, and I don't know, maybe in the UK, it's, it, it's, it's not as disruptive, but in, in Spain, which is a very, kind of has this socialist kind of, um, you know, history to it. In Spain, you know, working with the writers that are not employees was seen as something terrible uh, or, or was portrayed as something terrible by the media, by unions, etc. And that was very tough, right? It was very tough to be giving, you know, 100% of your time and your effort, um, you know, with, with huge teams of people that were doing the same. But then being on TV and on the newspapers, um, you know, at some point it was, you know, me being compared to Trump, right? <laughs> so, um, oh, and that is not fun. Well. So so that's the bit that was not fun. No. 
but on the other hand, yeah, um, no, it right. had to be done. So it's you know, if you you can't always cherry pick and just take the good parts of a job, right? It has to be good and the bad. Of course, and and I guess when you talk about those challenges, that that as a as an individual, as a, a businesswoman, as a leader, facing those challenges is where resilience is built, right? For the for the future, you you realise that there are some real challenging stuff you've got to deal with out there. And if you go through some of those heavy challenges and come out the other side, it, it only builds resilience. It does. It builds resilience. It shows you, um, it, it really, it, it shows you, it also shows you, you know, what people you can count on um, and kind of separates, you know, real friends from, you know, just people, you know, um, oh, it's, there's a lot of very good learnings to it. Um, mm, yeah, yeah. Should not shy away from it. So tell me about what you've, uh, and through that process where you've done the things you've done, you've uh, you've now moved into some other areas, one of which is um, another startup and uh, a potential unicorn in, in Sensei and autonomous shopping. Um, yes. Well, the thing here is that, and that's where maybe, again, doing things differently, um, people tend to, you know, if you're lucky enough to have been part of, you know, such as an amazing success story, such as Deliveroo, um, you know, people tend to, you know, retire or, you know, or take, make a good life for themselves. Um, in my case, you know, since then I've, I built another startup, which was, uh, Cirque, which was acquired by Bird, so that in scooter sharing. And now I've decided to join, you know, an amazing team at Sensei who are building autonomous stores. So stores in which you can go in, pick up stuff and leave without having to stop and pay. So it's again, it's the opposite, right? Instead of going on to something, saying, "Okay, I've had this really, you know, tough whatever," um, you know, let, let's go to the beach and relax somewhere. It's about no, like let's do it again. That's the thing, like, you know, right? and and that's what I want to do. I want to do it again. And of course, we uh, had a bit of fun, didn't we, in uh, Lisbon a few weeks ago when um, you took me into one of the stores and I spent an hour trying to steal something and was very, very unsuccessful. <laughs> well, that's a funny thing people always ask, right? Is they ask, okay, so how mm. how can you steal it in an autonomous store? It's like mm. you can't. Mm. <laughs> you always get no. charged for it. <laughs> but yes, but it was it was it was fun. <laughs> Glad you. But that's a massive culture change. When you talk about disruption and delivering food to a country that's been used to having great restaurants and great um, and great food all the time, and especially obviously my favourite, which is tapas. But um, and then going into a shop where we've been queuing for a hundred years, right? And then suddenly we bring in this entire culture change. And I'll never forget when um, we obviously got involved in some stuff um, uh, a couple of years ago when Amazon Fresh obviously started the, the journey in the UK. Um, where you go in and you grab a sandwich or you grab a roll and you walk out and you haven't paid. It's almost like you think, I've got to look over my shoulder, I'm about to run in case someone chases me. It just doesn't feel normal until you make it feel normal, right? So, And it becomes a big challenge to get early adopters. Finding early adopters is a lot is a lot more difficult than people think and, and it's challenging. And I think what I find interesting about your story is your passion to say that, yes, autonomous stores are the way forward, but you still have to accommodate those people that will be much slower to that change or may never change they need to have the choice yeah i think it's like in general like it for me throughout my life choice has been important and i do think that for most people it's really important to have that choice and that's why in sensei when we build these autonomous stores and for people that might not know autonomous stores to be able to enter an autonomous store a fully autonomous store you have to either swipe a credit card or swipe a um, you know, or, or, or tap your phone uh, with an app, and so there are, of course, people um, who, you know, who might be older or who might not want to 
or don't feel comfortable or might not have a credit card or or a mobile phone with them at that moment right and so generally um in autonomous stores those people would not be able to enter they would not be able to shop and what we've done differently here is that what we've said okay we're going to do it what we're going to do is we're going to allow everybody to go in and then people can decide whether they want to pay in cash and card, you know, stand in line if they want to, you know, if they decide they want to queue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fine too. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to give people options so that they can, you know, those who just want to, you know, pop in and pop out of the store. And I think I gave you an example the other day. Of, we detected a, a person who went into a supermarket, one of our supermarkets, in and out, grabbed a beer in less than 12 seconds. And you know, mm. paid for it <laughs> and drunk it in seven seconds. <laughs> <laughs> that, that bit we don't know, but um, at the end of the day, it's mm. about creating, um, you know, giving people. I think that's important that technology should give us choice and not restrict choice mm. from us. And yeah, that's something that's right. that yeah. I've been working on for years now. It's about giving the people, giving freedom, the freedom to choose. Of course, and never feeling constrained. Yeah, and of course. Yeah, and I think that's also something that you mentioned quite a lot in you know in in your book, right? The freedom to choose. Absolutely, it's one of our values is freedom, and the freedom, yeah, freedom, freedom to choose, the freedom to get it wrong, the freedom to try new things, and and so on. But Dinah, going back over your career and your experience in your life, if you could only name one thing, what are you most grateful for? I'm grateful for my parents, for my family, for all these people. I'm grateful for the people that have and continue to, you know, to to the journey with me. I've been incredibly, um, you know, I've been incredibly lucky and to you know have the family that I've had. Parents are super understanding. Parents who, you know, have always encouraged me to, you know, to follow my dreams. And and my husband, my husband's the same. You know, he's been incredibly supportive. We don't really have, if you think about it, we we don't have a very normal or, or standard relationship in the sense that, you know, he works, I work, but my job is, um, you know, probably much more demanding than his, and and it works out. And and I know that I've got somebody there who's who's got my back. Um, so people, so I'm grateful for for my rocks, and for my friends. Great answer. And then one final question. If you, again, reflecting on your career, your life, um, the golden nuggets you've picked up along the way, if there was one message, and you could only have one, if there was one message to give this audience, what would that one message be? I guess, um, so I had a, uh, again, one of my, one of these people that have been my rocks um, was, you know, my mentor, one of my, my first one of my first bosses, really. He was a he was he was British. Chris Donnelly. Um, he was like an amazing. He is an amazing person. Special. He's been a special advisor to four NATO secretary generals. Like an absolute. He, he's a star. And um, and one of the advices um, that he gave me, and you know, people laugh when I tell them about this, is. Uh, we were discussing, you know, what to do when you face a really difficult decision. And you know, we were talking about, you know, what do you do? You reflect on it. You list out the pros, your cons. Um, you know, so we were going through all of this. And then and then I asked him, so Chris, like, what would you, you, know, what, what, you, do, you what would you do? And he says, look, when I have a difficult decision, I do everything you said. So I reflect on it. I list out the pros, the cons. But then what I do is that I flip a coin. And I said, what do you mean you flip a coin? <laughs> He says, yes. So after you've done all of that work of reflecting and listing your pros and cons, ask yourself a question and say, you know, know, heads is A, 
tails is B, and flip the coin. And what is important is not the outcome, whether it's going to be heads or tails, but it's about what's important is how you feel when you flip the coin and you see the outcome. So if when you look at the coin that's fallen, you say, oh, actually, let's flip it again, then you already know that that was not the right decision. So it's actually really easy. Right? It's, um, it, it's about you know, really committing and re making sure that your decision is really what you truly believe in. Mm, that struck a nerve in me, actually, because when you think about the neocortex of your brain, which is all about logic and you know, language and one plus one equals and all the logical stuff, and then you look at your limbic brains, which is about how you feel, the tossing of the coin is is drawing out your emotion. It's drawing out how you actually feel about that situation. I think mean, that's great. That explains why you're always flicking coins when I see you. Um. <laughs> but you see, the thing there is that, um, you know, we we talk about our purpose and we talk about the importance of, uh, you know, of deciding what we want and all that. But there, if you think about, from my view, like what is it that then comes to whether you're going to be a success at something, whether you're going to be successful at something. It is whether you're prepared to do what it takes, right? To go through the ups, to go through the downs, to fail, to stand up and to fail again and to learn from it. But if you think about it, you're only going to be prepared to do that if you are 100% sure and committed to the decision. Mm. Of course. So making sure yeah. that, you know, that your emotions mm. Um, mm. and not just your brain are making the decision is pretty important oh i'm absolutely i'm absolutely with you yeah i'm i'm, I'm you're preaching converted I, I absolutely agree with that 100 percent. anyway listen diana it's been absolutely fantastic catching up with you today um it's uh we we obviously met up a couple of weeks ago we'll be meeting up again in a couple of weeks time so uh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us it's been an absolute pleasure and i look forward to seeing you again soon thanks a lot for having me jeff thank you